9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another special edition of the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, your host, coming to you from New York City. And uh, as we're trying to do every week, at least once a week, we'd like to have these interactive discussions with some of our members and special guests who have answers to questions the members want asked. Uh, And this is one of those podcasts. We're very lucky to have with us today one of our regulars and uh, one of our uh, audience uh, favorites, Dr. Kavita Patel, uh, who is a practicing primary care internist and served in the Obama administration and is a fellow at the Brookings administration. How are you at the at Brookings doing Institution? Ha- How are you doing, Kavita? 150 million vaccinations in. So, you know, only you know, 150 million more to go. So that's uh, that's where we're at, right? Kind of in the middle, David, but feeling yeah, good. But, but to say, you know, to say that we would have been there by by this date is that's not something we would have taken for granted. That's right. That's right. Uh, we're also joined today by Dr. Eric Feigelding, who is an epidemiologist and health economist, senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists in Washington, D.C., and chief health economist for Microclinic International. He's a well-known commentator on these issues, uh, and I follow him closely on Twitter because he writes very informative threads on all of this. Uh, welcome, Eric. Thank you. Happy to be here. And I'm really, really excited that we're at 150, but uh, with only day 75. So like Kavita, I'm really happy. Um, well, we'll talk a little bit about this uh, in a second. I just want to point out to those um, uh, listeners who are members who are joining us here in the webinar uh, that if you have a question to pose, just go to where the Q&A uh, uh, logo is down at the, uh, or icon is down at the bottom of the Zoom screen. A uh, little panel comes up and you can pose a question in writing. I will try to fit it into the conversation as we go. Um, I'll ask a few of my own questions up front and then we will get to that. But again, use the Q&A icon, not the one that says chat, um, because I don't follow that one during the course of the discussion. Um, So guys, I'm going to ask you both the same question to begin with. Uh, I follow this very closely. Um, I have the benefit of being informed about this uh, virtually every week by uh, Kavita when we do our pod on on Thursdays. Um, And so here's what I know. Uh, As Kavita said, we have a lot of vaccines having been administered in the United States. The president of the United States is about to announce that vaccinations will be available to everybody as of April 19th. Um, uh, There seems to be plenty of supply. The White House seems very confident in that in terms of uh, vaccines. Uh, We're leading the world in, uh, in terms of the speed with which we are getting the vaccines out there. By that, I mean, we're sort of in the top tier of countries um, in doing all of that. Um, And, uh, 
yesterday or the day before was the lowest uh, uh, total number of deaths that we've had since March 2020. That all sounds to me like good news. At the same time, um, uh, there are a number of states that are seeing significant spikes. There are a number of governors that continue to follow absurd um, policies. The French just went on a four-week <laughs> lockdown. Uh, there was a large article in the Washington Post yesterday about the catastrophic consequences uh, associated with Brazil's stunning mismanagement of this and the evolution of variants out of Brazil that are now having devastating consequences in Paraguay and Uruguay and Peru and in Venezuela, as well as in um, Brazil. India hit a new high. Um, and of course, you know, in addition to all of this, I've uh, been uh, seen that reliable sources and the American social media uh, believe that vaccine passports are a com uh, communist plot that involves elements <laughs> of Satanism and uh, Nazism. I mean, it, that it will destroy all of us. Uh, in other words, there seems to be some good news here. There seems to be some very worrisome news here. What are we to make of all of this? And uh, let me start with you, Kavita, and then we'll go to Eric. Sure. And, and I think you hit it right on the head, David. Like, it's kind of bizarre to feel so much optimism, but then looking at the data, and I do have to give credit to Eric. He is one of the, you know, even a year plus ago was one of the few people that was kind of raising the airborne quality of this and raising a lot of red flags about this kind of virus from China. Uh, so I do think that we are at this kind of interesting point. And here's what I'll say. Um, my, in the, in the mid-Atlantic area where I practice and comparing notes with people who are in kind of some of the other hotspot areas, the demographics, generally younger people coming in hospitalized and even children, we're seeing just more cases of positives. And because older people are being vaccinated, we're just seeing younger cases and what happened Variants are playing a factor, to your point, the rollbacks. And by the way, now it's like every governor, it's almost like everybody is racing blue or red to reopen as fast as possible. I mean, Abbott deserves to be called out as does DeSantis because of the masks, but every governor is peeling back the restrictions prematurely. And, and I think Eric might agree, but I, I would say the other part that's difficult is that we're still kind of in an unknown territory with these variants. And it's not just the familiar ones, B117, P1, I mean, B1351. It's also the variants that are our own homegrown Manhattan, B1526, the double mutation on in a variant in Southern, it found in uh, the Bay Area from India or believed to be in India as well. So those are the reasons that all of these things kind of present a mixed picture However, the United States would be in a far worse condition if we weren't actually vaccinating as many people and if we didn't have three highly effective vaccines. So it's hard to believe that we can both be in a state of optimism and dire pessimism, but that's where we are and sitting right on the border of it. By the way, when you say three highly effective vaccines, uh, I'm taking that that's AstraZeneca shade, Sinopec, <laughs> uh, Sino Chinese vaccine it shade, is. Sputnik. Russian shade. Right. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I should say I'm, I'm, I'm three highly effective authorized vaccines that I can offer to anybody in the United States. Right. And <laughs> and others. Uh, Eric, what do you what do you what do you what do you make of all this? Yeah, I, 
I completely agree with Kavita. It's in certain ways we've been chasing, you know, the vaccines and it's really good news. As I was saying earlier, you know, we're on well on our way to 225 million by day 100 of Biden administration, but the rest of the world is in a world of trouble. Um, Brazil, they just announced 4,100 deaths. U.S. is 50% larger. So that's the equivalent of 6,000 U.S. deaths a day, which we never even came close to. We, we, dare, we didn't even brush from 5,000 much. And so Brazil is in a world of trouble. They do not have any vaccines. They're out of supplies. Rio de Janeiro is completely out of vaccines. And the bulk of their orders are not going to arrive till June. And, you know, they didn't order 138 million um, until like last week when ICUs were 95, 100% full. And those are not going to arrive till the end of the year. Brazil's in a world of trouble. Chile uh, luckily got uh, it's a stash of Sinovac vaccines, but they rushed to reopen and their ICUs are full as well and their mortality soaring. And Brazil's neighbors as well. And Mexico, Mexico is announced that its actual mortality was 60% higher than previously thought and actually exceeds Brazil official count right now. And they don't have enough vaccines. They don't have enough vaccines for healthcare workers. There's, pedi there's pediatric in, um, uh, doctors, mm -hmm. uh, pedi pediatric uh, infectious disease doctors who have zero vaccine access right now in Mexico. And that is in incredibly, incredibly worrisome. And of course, Canada, which at the beginning they ordered more vaccines than anybody in the world per capita now are actually behind the race um, because they don't actually have vaccine production them some themselves and and we don't even have to get into a lot of the european issues right now with astrazeneca they're so behind it's it's really sad and so although the u.s is in great shape this is not some u.s domestic issue uh in which u.s has many like gun violence and whatnot this is a global pandemic and we basically ignore the plight of all these other countries, not share our stockpiles of vaccine that we have, this mm -hmm. pandemic's gonna keep going and eventually one of these unlucky variants are gonna come back and bite us from the, you know, these other countries like P1. You know, British Columbia has a great, a huge P1 outbreak uh, and Vancouver Canucks or half the team is completely uh, came down with it and many are sick and are IV fluids. But Boston, Boston has, one of the largest outbreaks of P1 from Brazil as well. And it came completely snuck up underneath us. And what, so I think, you know, whether it's a red state or a blue state, we're not out of this until the whole world is out of this. And I think a lot of people have that tunnel vision that this thing's gonna be over, but I don't think this is gonna, gonna be over. This is gonna go on for quite a longer time until the whole world has enough vaccines. Yeah, well, I mean, the White House yesterday or State Department yesterday announced that uh, the U.S. has actually put somebody, very qualified person, an old friend, Gail Smith, who used to run USAID in charge of U.S. efforts associated with COVAX and getting the vaccine out to other countries. Um, but let's deal with the U.S. for just a second before we, you know, uh, weigh into that. And I've got a bunch of questions from the group, so I will get to that shortly. Um, but um, there are a bunch of places that at the very beginning of this, we thought, oh, yeah, these governors, they understand this. Governor Cuomo, he understands this. Um, uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, the, the leadership in Michigan or the, the mm -hmm. leadership in Connecticut or the leadership in uh, some of these other states get it. Um, and we also said, like, you know, your home state, Kavita, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the governor in Texas, he doesn't get it. Mm 
Mm-hmm. But this, we're seeing spikes in some of the places with good governance and mm-hmm. not yet in the other places, although we've seen we've seen some in those. Um, why? Yeah, I'll go for, I mean, trust me, nobody has kind of mystified and marveled at some of the data. When I started seeing Michigan, and just for context, Michigan is 3% of the United States population, but it is responsible right now for approximately 20% of our new cases. So it is beyond disproportionate, beyond a hot spot, especially in the thumb and kind of parts of Detroit. So I have been mystified. When you drill down deeper though, David, it's a couple of things. There is some truth to Texas and Florida are states where being outdoors and kind of having that outdoor kind of gatherings, even if it's spring break, is a little easier than in parts of Lansing, Michigan, for example, when it was still about 36 degrees. There is some of that, but I think a lot of it is, if you also look at some of these places, school reopenings combined with, there are still local mayors, you've had Dallas, Houston, and some local officials that kept mask mandates. But even while Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, had a mask mandate still in place, you still had counties that said, no, we're not doing this. And obviously the kidnap and protesting that she's had to deal with for an entire year. So I kind of make it, it feels like a head scratcher to me in the beginning, but um, Eric's the epidemiologist, but I would say now looking at the data, it is starting to, to bite them. We're seeing 76% of ICUs in Dallas are at capacity. South Florida has a you know d- double-digit positivity rates. So it is coming around. I do think the vaccination pace is kind of making this a little bit um, less predictable. We used to be able like clockwork to follow the EU, to follow other countries, almost down to where it was like two to four weeks And so what we're seeing now is reminiscent of March. If you remember March of 2020, we saw certain parts affected. And then we were scratching our heads going, why not Florida? Why not Florida? And then boom, it came around. And so the only way to mitigate this, I hate to say it, we can't vaccinate our way out of it. We have to kind of run through it and the vaccination will help. Um, And then, you know, to Eric's point, if we don't have a global vaccination effort, we're just going to be kind of in this vicious cycle again and again, unfortunately. You know, Eric, when I, I listened to Kavita say this and sh- and she's made reference a couple of times to the fact that you're an epidemiologist, I think, you know, a year ago, being an epidemiologist was kind of unusual. And now everybody in the- <laughs> Is an epidemiologist. An epidemiologist. <laughs> yeah, this is actually really interesting because um, a couple of years ago, I ran for Congress and I said, I'm an epidemiologist. And everyone's like, what? What's that? <laughs> Yo, what the hell is that? Go back to your lab. you know." <laughs> and then they made some sort of Asian-esque, semi-racist comment. But, um, but in certain ways, epidemiology is like, the science has also been very much attacked. You know, mm-hmm. if anything, they call Fauci an epidemiologist, even though he's an infectious disease physician. And of course, all these lying epi- epidemiologists. It's a very politically charged word. It's called like climatologist these days. Hmm. Um, but uh, I actually, I want to uh, comment about the Florida thing. And, you know, this is the head scratcher of why Florida and Texas are not seeing the surge, but the Northern states are. And we thought about this last year too. It, I think it gets back to the aerosol transmission. The main mode, as mm-hmm. CDC said, is not the surface kind of thing, dirty door, doorknob or anything. It's aerosol. And what happens in the winter in the seasonal patterns is that in the winter time, it's cold. In the Northern states, you bundle in, close the window because it's so darn cold. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, this, in the winter, Florida and Texas, for the most part, other than an Arctic surge, you know, they have, Texas had less a month. It's pretty generally okay to keep your windows open or go outside and have a lot of outdoor activities. Uh, but then that reverses in the summer. In the summer, Florida and Texas becomes excruciatingly hot and hence air conditioning turned on. And again, people close the window. Well, the, well you know, that kind of reverses uh, in the North. And this is why Florida didn't get hit until June. Um, and I expect a similar phenomenon to happen again because a lot of these spring breakers, I'll admit, it's not the beaches that spread. It's not the outdoor parties. It's the indoor nightclubs and bars but which right now in Florida is still relatively close. I think Florida will definitely get hit pretty soon in the, in the coming mm-hmm. um, few months as it gets warmer. And so it's not a, it's not some magical thing. It's mitigation, but sometimes you get lucky with air, airborne transmission when it's a favorable climate. And I just want to add the one thing that has been puzzling me um, just in tracking kind of local outbreaks, by the way, uh, school outbreaks in this area, low cases, but they're all B117 variant. Yeah. And, and some of them were picking up. Here's, here's my real X factor. There's a question about variants, but it's, it's worth thinking about. We've been basing everything 15 minutes, six feet, X, Y, and Z. 10 day, you know, incubation periods based on our knowledge of kind of the wild type, the strains we had. These mutant strains, not to scare people, I mean, I'm picking up positivity on like day 14 after exposure. There's something, not just that they're more transmissible, but we might find that it's five minutes to Eric's point. Like it's it's not necessarily the conventional norms that we've all kind of gotten sanitized about, um, mm-hmm. but it's it's something, which is why it's frustrating to see so many irresponsible reopenings. I'll say responsible reopenings, prioritizing certain settings, you know, letting hospitals have visitors, nursing homes have visitors, that's responsible kind of thinking, having, you know, huge crowds packed in when we still don't have a lot of answers about what we don't know. And, you know, they've gotten smacked in, in the past year is astounding. Yeah. So we got a bunch. And, of- and I also see it. Go ahead. Pardon, sorry. Pardon, pardon, no. Okay. Well, we've we've got a bunch of questions uh, from uh, the people participating in the interactive portion of this thing, and I'd like to get to them. I, I haven't been able to pre-read them because there's so many of them. So I'm just going to fire them at you, and uh, I'll start with one for you, Eric. And then, if for some reason you want to answer the one that you know, if if I give this to Eric, if Kavita, you've got a follow up on it, let me know. But yeah. We'll sure. just go through this as fast as, as we can. Yeah, get through it. Um, and I'm just going to go down the, the, the list that we've got here. Uh, so, Eric, uh, the, the question says, we discuss the antibody response all the time, but I barely hear about the T-cell response the body mounts once a vaccine is administered. Can you explain what T-cells are and how they work, what we know about the T-cell response to the vaccine, and how they react to variants? And that's a good question. And T cells is one of those things that's much harder to measure because oftentimes we measure the antibody neutralization, but T cells is a different immune system pathway that is uh, based on cellular receptors on the T cells. And then the T cells aid uh, the clearance of the virus. And in certain ways, it's there are T cell tests of immunity, by the way, um, but they're much more rare and, uh, but both the T cells and B cells have memory T cells and memory B cells. So that 
after you have been exposed to the virus or the vaccine, they remember what the virus looks like and the, what the spike protein looks like in the case of the vaccine. And so uh, a lot of times when we talk about the, how well a vaccine works, we oftentimes talk about either we know the efficacy, which is rare. We don't know the efficacy for a lot of the variants uh, directly other than the South Africa variant in the B117. Or we talk about how much it neutralizes, but that is for the antibodies. So although we see that, you know, some people say the vaccine's really big in tr big trouble for the South Africa B1351, um, but, you know, that doesn't account for the T cells, the other pathway that's not due to the antibody uh, neutralization. And, you know, Kavita is the MD here. I'm just the med school dropout. Um, and so she can uh, fill in more. But I think this is the ongoing debate of what do we do about the unknown parts? We don't know the exact efficacy. We think it might be lower. We definitely think it's a little bit lower for a South African. We think it might be a little lower for P1. And so that also means that even if you're, um, in terms of health policy, even if you're vaccinated, you definitely still need to wear the mask because the mask, especially for asymptomatic transmission is only around 74 to 95% for uh, most of the vaccines. Uh, but that's for the old wild common type, not the, these variants. So we have to be really, really careful that we, although we don't know the exact efficacy, we know that asymptomatic transmission sometimes is still a problem. And, and until we have herd immunity, we still definitely need to mask and protect others. And I think T cells is one of this mystery parts that we don't have enough data on uh, other than direct efficacy, which takes much longer time to figure out. I'll offer you just an analogy, David, because it's kind of a nice, elegant way to think about T cells and B cells, the different types of immune cells. Think of what the vaccines are giving you as a, a couture coat that's tailored to every part of your body. It fits perfectly like a glove. And that's really kind of the B cell, the immune response that we're looking for that knows kind of exactly what this virus could look like in a bunch of different ways and tailors it for your body. Think of the T cells as the memories, as the suit that's off the rack and it fits pretty well, but it's also gonna kill a bunch of things that might not necessarily be as targeted and as elegant as the kind of other type of immunity. So people aren't talking about T cells because it's taken a while for us to even understand Good news, the vaccines provoke a T cell response, which is not necessarily an assumption because usually to see a T cell response, we're, we're not looking for exposure from the vaccine. We're looking for um, infections and some things that can trigger that memory. But it's, it's good news for us to have longer term immunity as well and uh, the ability to have immunity if you get an infection from the variants. T cells really kick in once this infection has started unlike kind of the other immunity cells, which really try to prevent the infection and prevent the spike protein from burying in and replicating. That's maybe a good way to think about the different types of immunity. Okay, I'll go to the next question. We have a kind of a mountain of these. So if we can- Okay, go we'll keep them, through. we'll do faster. I know that's yeah. David. No, no, it's, this is good. And this is what people wanna hear. So the next one is if the vaccines do not fully prevent infection, what does that mean for the ability of the virus to mutate further in vaccinated uh, people. Uh, oh, Eric first. And yeah, then. this is a good question. And I get, I get this question a lot. First of all, the vaccines prevent uh, death and severe illness really, really well, 95 to 100%. 
And this is for all the, vi uh, the virus variants and all the va uh, vaccines we've seen so far for the most part. And, but in terms of, you know, you could be a mild carrier and, you know, you could theoretically have it for a short period of time. But I guarantee you that the, uh, the duration of illness will definitely be uh, lower than uh, if you didn't have any vaccine at all. And in certain ways, a lot of the studies in immunocompromised show that it's really a long duration of illness that actually generates the mutations. We've seen so many immunocompromised cases, such as there's one in Boston at Brigham Women's Hospital, someone was infected for 150 days because he was immunocompromised. And during that time, his body had, uh, had basically allowed the virus to hypermutate to uh, dozens of different ways with lots of mutations. But the vaccine will reduce the amount of time. It's basically, you know, it reduces the amount of viral load that it can, it can the, the virus can basically establish a colony before it's immediately destroyed by the, the vaccine. Um, so I think altogether, the chance of mutations are going to be much lower, much less. You know, it's just fewer contacts and fewer opportunities. I think that's the key lesson here. And um, you know, I think long term, though, um, you know, two doses of these vaccines are really important because it makes the immune system more robust and respond faster and with higher antibody response. That should shorten the time in which the virus lives in your body as well. So altogether, less time for the virus in your body, less time for it to mutate. Okay, next question. Um, uh, what's your best guess on when we might know if the available vaccines significantly reduce transmissibility? Is it likely that some vaccines may do that better than others? Um, I'll, I'll quickly oh, jump oh, in oh, here. Oh, yes, okay. we, we know that reducing transmissibility is about you know, 75 to 90% for um, symptomatic and asymptomatic. And that said, I saw a report this weekend that shows the AstraZeneca vaccine, although it was very high, over 75, 80% for, um, for the regular variant, for the B117, it was only in the 20s. So these variants are very tricky, uh, 20, in the 20s for asymptomatic infection. And we've seen this kind of phenomenon before. Uh, again, also against the South Africa variant, the, uh, AstraZeneca was pretty weak against South Africa variant. That's why South Africa discontinued AstraZeneca, not because of any clotting reasons. So this is why we need to stop these variants. Vaccines definitely work and they do protect you against severe disease, but the more variants there are, the more of this tricky asymptomatic transmission there could be. And that, gives me some, quite a bit of pause and worry. So um, I'm hopeful, and the US vaccines also seem to be pretty well, doing much better than the AstraZeneca vaccine. So I'm hopeful in the US, at least we can contain it. Okay, Kavita, how big a difference can the US make with solving the problem the world has? I mean, can we, can we make a big dent in getting those vaccines out there or uh, is, is just taking care of business at home so demanding that we're, you know, that we can't do more than gestures. No, we, we can. And let me offer, because I think somewhere in the chat, um, Ernie talking about kind of, this weaves in a couple of things. There's been a lot of conversation around waiving patents. I'm going to bring back my old days when I worked for Ted Kennedy and we talked about PEPFAR and HIV drugs. 
back then with Debbie Burks um, and Tony Fauci, same people, different topic. And we talked about breaking patents in order to allow for more of the globe to have access to HIV drugs. Um, turns out that just doing that is not so simple. So I think the US can do things. We can talk about lifting patents and making it easier. What will happen is um, India and China and other, other places will kind of come in and do things. However, the thing that we can't lose sight of that will actually help is not necessarily just exporting whole vaccine, that's better than nothing. But David, we need to probably help manufacturing facilities with raw goods. So some of the hardest things with developing these vaccines has been some of the lipid particles and some of the, the actual uh, solvents to mix the mRNA vaccines. That is a place where the United States has incredible heft. And if you think about continuing this domestic you know, kind of, or sorry, Defense Production Act, but for the purpose of global access, that's an incredible power. So lifting patents, exporting, sure, we can send vaccine, but we would do a world of good exponential if we can augment manufacturing to truly be a force multiplier for manufacturing around the world. And why not do it for the vaccines that we know to Eric's point that are highly effective? Um, and, and that's where we've got domestic manufacturing capacity. And you saw the EU having to clamp down because of pro literally problems with their or lack of manufacturing capacity in Canada and some other countries. By the way, I, I, would, I would add that the person posed the question in terms of potential foreign policy benefits of this. And clearly, to the extent to which we help the world, uh, there are foreign policy benefits. And, uh, and to the extent to which we didn't or said we weren't going to mm -hmm. earlier, there's damage. Yeah. Uh, uh, Eric, next question. Is there a point in using self-tests or getting a PCR test once I am fully vaccinated? That's actually a good question. Um, you know, for, in the CDC policy right now, they say basically you can travel without testing and quarantining. But I think in certain ways, um, it depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to form, of, say, a bubble, right? A group of people who are together and you really want to make sure that anyone entering the bubble has zero, zero, zero viruses. Because once you're in the bubble, some people are going to take off their masks. And, and I don't recommend it because uh, it's, it's very tricky. Any bubbles should involve both testing and quarantining uh, for a while, even if you're vaccinated. Because we know that vaccinated people, especially with certain vaccines, can still carry the virus well, for a brief period of time. And, and especially, by the way, the variants. B117, there's a study that actually shows the period of infectiousness is actually much longer with B117 than with the old one. So in certain ways, if you broaden the time in which you can actually infect others, it is a serious problem. So I think testing is, is good when you're trying to make sure you're going to do some high-risk activity that will potentially cause a huge havoc if you are carrying it somehow. And in certain ways, cruise ships, right? That's like the number one thing that everyone got a headache from last year and no one is doing anymore. I think being vaccinated and having the test makes you, as we say in science, doubly robust that you can potentially you know, prevent an outbreak in these critical, critical situations such as a cruise ship. But, and, but otherwise, I think also some countries are just really, really careful. They do not, we do not want like the Brazil variant entering the United States anymore. It's already here in, in, uh, in Boston area, Massachusetts area, mm -hmm. but we really, really don't want it anywhere else in the country. 
even though it's already in Florida. And so I think keeping out these variants is really key. So testing um, uh, foreign travel entering the United States before they board and after they board and maybe for the next few days while they quarantine, I think it's really key uh, that we snuff it out. Okay, I appreciate you guys, by the way, going with this lightning round approach. We've got a few more questions and a few more minutes. Uh, Kavita, we talk a lot about variants and vaccines. What progress is being made on treatments yeah. to manage severe outcomes? Yeah, it's it's actually very interesting. We've made pretty significant progress with trials around monoclonal antibodies, which have now been incredible data to show that it can prevent a progression to severe disease, particularly kind of we call it bam, bam, kind of, you know, using um, different types of monoclonal antibodies together. So a true antibody cocktail, for those of you who don't recall, that's actually what President Trump had. And on, and then there's another drug that doesn't get as much attention because the evidence is, I would say, kind of intermediate, but still when you have not much left, it's pretty good called tocilizumab and another kind of antibody, different type that is helpful, especially if you've got signs of inflammation, that's for hospitalized. And then in the case of um, the antibody cocktail for monoclonals, that's for people who are positive, but at risk of going to the hospital, but not quite in the hospital yet. And then remdesivir, we have also still continuing evidence on the benefits in certain places in hospital settings for remdesivir, for steroids. We now have kind of a cocktail that, you know, if you come into the hospital with COVID, we put you on and it's actually pretty straightforward and we're getting very good rates of discharging people from hospital to home, which is not what we could say a year ago. That doesn't involve injecting Clorox. It does not. There is actually like I was trying to figure out, I didn't have the time to look it up, but there is actually some like line somewhere in the NIH kind of treatment guidance that's like injection of bleach is not encouraged uh, or discouraged or something. And then hydroxychloroquine, look look at how much time we took to do something that was so irresponsible. But we're still having to remind people and still to this day, prescriptions for hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, ivermectin, drugs that have been proven not to work are way above normal. So, yeah, well, I'd like to get into the parallel between that, the movie Contagion and the Forsythia (laughs) that they were distributing in the movie Contagion, but we don't have time for it here. Eric, is anybody surprised that the U.S. does not get more blame for having let the pandemic get this far out of control in the first place? It's hard to imagine what would have or would not have happened if we had, as the de facto of the leader free world, gotten out ahead of this in the beginning of 2020, both in terms of American life saves and the role in model leadership it would have provided, perhaps particularly in Europe. Right now, the rest of the world is busy just keeping its head above water. But is this not poised to be a strain in our relationship with allies going forward? And I think this is, you know, the question is, what's the lingering Trump effect? Yeah, I think the lingering trunk effect is is definitely still with us. The death toll is, of course, the lingering Trump effect. And the, may also add long COVID is a lingering uh, Trump effect. UK just did a study that 25% of all people who've been infected have persistent long COVID symptoms. Hmm. Uh, and the top two occupations are healthcare workers. Second, number two is teachers. And this is, this is the legacy that we're going to carry. So in terms of Trump, in certain ways, Trump parroting and leading the, oh, it's just the case-demic, you know, it's just testing, no testing, no, no virus. And obviously that also egged on many other author- authoritarian rulers uh, out there, such as Bolsonaro, 
you know, also, you know, Boris Johnson early on, uh, his administration tried to go with the herd, the natural infection herd immunity approach, which means infect everyone. And I think that kind of leadership is if if the, if the United States had led like Jacinda Ardern did in New Zealand, I think the rest of the world would have gone with the zero COVID approach as well, hmm. right? But U.S. did the laissez-faire approach, and U.S. is oftentimes looked up to by so many countries, and again, promoting hydroxychloroquine. You know, hydroxychloroquine to this day is still prescribed, uh, and there's pill packs with hydroxychloroquine in Brazil as the leading drug. So I think all that is part of our legacy. Uh, Brazil's death count is part of our legacy, too. But, uh, But right now, the key thing is, what is our legacy in terms of sharing our vaccines with the world? What is our legacy in terms of making sure that U.S. uses our soft power to project helping different countries in the critical, critical time of need when they need help the most and not just let, you know, Russia do it with their Sputnik or China do it with their uh, uh, vaccines. United States soft leadership and sharing vaccines with the world is so critical right now. Yeah, I would add, by the way, that, uh, you know, this and this seemed impossible to imagine four months ago. But I think people will start looking to the United States in terms of the speed of the rollout under Biden, the effectiveness of the rollout of the vaccine and so forth and say, oh, that's how it's done. Because it's mm-hmm. it's certainly not being done that way in, in, in Europe. And and, I, and by the way, I've, I just had an exchange with somebody today on that point with regard to Canada. Um, David, I can roll these three vaccine questions into one answer if it helps. The, but Yes, but you've read them, you see, Kavita. And, I have. And, and so I have, I'm a can you, fast can reader, you, medical can you roll the, No, yeah. I know, but can you roll them into a fast summary of what the question is? Yes, so, uh, but let me tick through it. So because we have large manufacturers that have failed in producing their own vaccines, why can't Macron or other members of the EU negotiate to have those manufacturers actually manufacture more of someone else's vaccine to augment the supply, just like we did in the United States with Merck? And the answer is yes, that's absolutely possible. The only reason that you're not seeing it done is because there is no one EU country that has such strength of force. And again, this raw goods issue that make it uh, there, even if Sanofi stepped in, there would still be a three to six month delay because of procurement of these raw goods and essentially the lack, ironically, of kind of an EU even like DPA. Um, and then the second on Pfizer, Moderna, actually, I'll let I'll let Eric take the very last one. But uh, the second one is around how we have ample supply of the current authorized vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson and Johnson. Is there a reason to incorporate even incorporate AZ? Remember, we've promised AZ. We've exported AZ, which we have on our shelves to Canada, Mexico, and also some other countries in the in the in the queue. However, I would say AstraZeneca is going to face a significant hurdle here in the FDA because of the. You can just look up the Guardian's newspaper's front page today. There is contradictory information from the EMA, the FDA equivalent in in Europe's own head of vaccine science, who is saying that there are serious kind of correlations between the AstraZeneca vaccine and clots. And in the UK, they're actually asking for all clinicians, all physicians who are seeing COVID cases and have some concern about clots to actually go in through a protocol with AZ vaccine for something called heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So it's a, I would say that it's gonna be very difficult to get over what I would say has been just a botched set of uh, rollouts from Oxford and AstraZeneca. 
in order to make it matter in the United States. So that we'll have to deal with that. Okay, so Eric, let me take the last question that we've got here from the, the participants and I'm gonna reframe it slightly for both you and then Kavita to, to wrap up our discussion. The, the question is how many are uh, of the planned or actualized authorization approval initial distribution of 13 different COVID vaccines are any good uh, and the development, you know, of the, you know, of, and how many of the others that are in trials are any good? Is this offering real hope for more effective management and an eventual end to the pandemic? Or is it just another example of traditional U.S. overwhelming optimism? Mm -hmm. Now, my add-on question to this, which is going to be my last question to you and my last question to Kavita here, although we're going to have to get you guys back on a regular basis, is um, is it is 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 it diluted or a mistake to think of this in terms of the end of the pandemic, or should we be thinking about this in much the same way that we think about the flu, yeah. that this is going to be around for a long time, that we're going to have to come up with vaccines to protect as many people as possible, treatments to deal with people who we don't end up protecting, uh, and that we shouldn't look towards the end of the pandemic, mm -hmm. but that we look to the end of the emergency and, and, and learning how to live with this as simply another one of the common diseases that that people encounter on the planet Earth, Eric then Kavita. Yeah, this is this is a raging, raging debate right now, and I can't emphasize enough. On one side, you have the zero COVID. The zero COVID means let's go for elimination, local eradication, and then you'll have a utopia um, like New Zealand and Australia and Taiwan and uh, Vietnam. Uh, and in those countries, by the way, just announced Australia and New Zealand have formed a bubble with each other because they're both zero COVID countries that people can travel uh, without any quarantine whatsoever. Um, and so that is that utopia is obviously oftentimes what we are striving for, but we're running out of time in certain ways. Many countries are at, a, you know, I would not recommend zero COVID right now for Brazil because, you know, we just want Brazil contained, but we can go for zero COVID in a lot of countries that have the resources to do so, like Canada should definitely go for zero COVID. European countries should definitely go for zero COVID because they have the testing power, they have the tracing power if they want to, and they have the vaccine purchasing power and they have the you know, na national treasury to basically pay people to stay home. And I think that is the ultimately the better approach, but we're running out of time and the variants are growing and you're going to have eventually going to play a whack-a-mole if we don't stop it. So right now we're racing against time to have vaccine stop as many of these cases as possible. And hopefully with mitigation and masks, we can get to zero. And, you know, once you're down to almost to zero, UK is almost down to zero. If they just went a little bit longer, they could get to actually zero for good and, you know, protect themselves. And so prevent an endemic future of, of continually updated uh, booster shots after booster shots. And I hate to say it, booster shots are definitely coming. Um, mm -hmm. They're coming for Johnson Johnson. They're coming for the Moderna uh, and Pfizer vaccines, I'm pretty sure by sometime next year, especially if we don't uh, get this thing under control. So in certain ways, 
it's a race against clock and the the window to end this and have a complete eradication or local elimination it's kind of closing for a lot of these countries if we don't act faster so that's why i'd go for okay last word for now kavita Yeah. So let me disagree, but not in a kind of a confrontational way that I would just say that we're probably just going to have to get used to going from a pandemic to, well, Eric, I think you actually are saying something similar to kind of something where this is quote unquote endemic and limited to certain countries. And we, I would hope that we're consistently doing surveillance and trying to monitor so that we don't reach critical levels in the United States, but anything is possible. So I do think that, uh, I, I just even getting back to the questioners, uh, kind of hundred plus vaccines. I actually think that it's a combination of like entrepreneurialism and optimism, but then kind of this fact that Eric laid out that this isn't going to, you know, we aren't going to get to zero COVID in the world because that's just not the habit of the world. And so we're going to need solutions. I know some of these manufacturers are doing intranasal formulations. You know, we're all going to have like wanting to get tailored ways to get our vaccines. And if we're going to have a future with COVID vaccines on a regular basis, we'll continue to want those products. And of course, in America, we want it right away. And so that's why I think we'll see manufacturers, even those that have not entered phase one, keep doing what they want to do to just get a, imagine getting a small fraction of the market that's dominated right now by the five, you know, that are sorry, six, seven, seven, that are pretty much dominating the global market. Um, folks, uh, that was great. It was great participation from the, uh, the folks who are in the webinar. Um, uh, and it was great, uh, of course, from both uh, Kavita and Eric, and there's so much left to discuss. I'd really like to um, reconvene this, not just because I know the story is going to be around in a while, but there's a whole separate set of issues that I'd like to talk about at some point, which have to do with uh, something that Kavita uh, and we have talked about here a lot, which is lessons of this. How do you know this is not the the, the last pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. And there, there are some clear lessons from this that will enable us to deal with future outbreaks of this sort. Uh, and indeed, there are reasonable uh, projections that those things may happen more frequently in the future, not less frequently in the future. And so we need to yeah. learn those lessons and apply them. And uh, uh, I, I think this would uh, this would be a great discussion to have what that might be. So we will do that again in the future. Um, And we will continue to have these interactive discussions. Uh, And for those of you who are interested in them, go to the dsrnetwork.com or follow the things that we distribute among uh, members uh, because we will have them uh, uh, each and every week. And we will try to increase the number of our podcasts that have this component to it Um, uh, because for some reason, the questions of the uh, audience are better than, than my questions. And that's really depressing, but um, I'll, ju- I'll, I'll sit here and provide a you know, smooth introduction and wrap up at the end of these episodes. So thank you, everybody. Um, uh, thank you, especially uh, Eric, for joining us for the first time. Thank you, Kavita, thank you. Uh, as always. Uh, and uh, please join us again soon for an upcoming podcast. And uh, stay safe and healthy, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>